Welcome. It's time to elevate your consciousness and tune in. This is Mastermind with your host, Dr. Rebecca. This show is about possibilities. If you're successful, ready, and highly motivated to make the necessary changes in your life, we'll provide the tools, direction, and encouragement to help you along the way. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca. And welcome back to Mastermind. I am your host, Dr. Rebecca. And here at Mastermind, we teach you how to harness the power of your mind in order to do great things, or even small things in a great way. If you feel like your life has become a little mundane, or if you're trying to regain that creative edge in some area of your life, stay tuned. Today's episode will completely change how you think about creativity. Len Furman is an adjunct professor at the University of North Florida, where he teaches a course he developed on business creativity and innovation. He actually wrote the book as well, as he recently published a college textbook titled Business Creativity and Innovation, Perspectives and Best Practices, which is available on Amazon. Len holds two master's degrees in business and economics from Duke University. After graduating, he spent 25 years managing innovation at Fortune 500 companies. Len was the head of ideation at Bank of America, and he is also a frequent speaker at business conferences on innovation. Len is also proud to be a seven-time gold medalist at the World Joggling Championships, which combines running with juggling. He once held the record for running the half-mile while juggling in a time of 2.23. Len Furman, welcome to Mastermind. Thank you, Rebecca, for having me on the show. It's an honor to be here. Great. So there's a lot to dig into here. You have done so much in your 25-year history. I'd like to start out just, this is a, a really, really interesting career that you've, you've made for yourself. Can you tell me first just how you got into becoming an innovator? An innovator? Well, as I was growing up, I always thought of myself as an idea person, somebody who came up with big ideas. I liked to look at things and see how could they be done differently but I didn't know that there was a career path for it. And when I was in business school, I actually had the desire to become an equity analyst. I wanted to be one of these people that Uh you see on CNBC that tells you which way (laughs) Amazon stock is going. And I was actually pursuing that path. And then the 1987 stock market crash hit and it dried up the jobs for all the stock market analysts. So suddenly I had to pivot and look for another career path. And as I was in business school, I had learned about a career path called a product manager. So most consumer product uh, companies in the United States like Procter & Gamble or Johnson & Johnson, for each of their products, they'll have somebody who is the product manager. It's like they're the CEO of just that one product. And that really appealed to me. I thought that was very attractive. And so I was pursuing that path. But I found that avenue was closed to me because the education path that I had chosen to take was to go straight from college to get my master's in economics and business. And at that time in the late 1980s, a lot of companies were saying, we just want people that have some business experience in between college and graduate school. And so they wouldn't, they wouldn't consider me for the product manager positions. And, but they would consider me for a path that I hadn't thought of, which was to do market research. And that really appealed to me when I started taking a look at it because it had a lot of the 
features that I liked about the equity analyst job. But, right. uh, and it also uh, lent itself to being kind of the right-hand man to the product manager. So I got into market research and actually new product market research with AT&T, uh, starting with a summer internship in 87 and then uh, staying with them as a, a full-time job in 1988. And I realized right from the beginning, mm-hmm. that I really loved this, that, that I was taking a look at new products, analyzing them, understanding what customers thought about these new products. And I realized this was kind of the fulfillment of what I always wanted to do. And I kind of just stumbled into it. Right, because it combines the creativity, which was important to you, and then also the analysis, you know, like the the systematic analysis that appealed to you um, before. So it seemed to be the, a, a field that you didn't know about that was made just for you. And right away, I found it fascinating to go out and speak to customers around the country and really understand what their needs were, what their thoughts were, and, and really be able to empathize with them. And, and that's one of the key things you do in market research is you develop empathy for the customer so you gain a deep understanding of their needs. And, and that's so important to the whole innovation and creativity process. And so I felt like as an innovator, the best way, looking back 30 years now into the late 80s, the be- I think the best way to start if you want to be an mm-hmm. innovator and have a career that involves creativity and innovation is to start in a market research position because that is absolutely the best grounding for innovation to really understand customer needs and understand all the techniques so that you can uh, really gain deep insights into what customers want. How did you see, as you, um, you know, started this position, how did you see your thought process evolve um, as an innovator? How did you grow in this, in this job and what did you learn? Well, again, my first two to three years as a market research manager, I really loved that type of work. And then over time, I realized if I wanted to grow inside the company, I had to move beyond market research. And even though I really liked, enjoyed that type of work, I realized what I, what I really wanted to do was have the opportunity to uh, be able to uh, affect those changes. So, so, and, and going back to what the door that had been shut to me several years ago, being a product manager, I started pursuing uh, the role of a new product manager. Uh, and so, and I had been the right-hand man as the market research manager to new product managers at AT&T for several years. And I was able to make my next move, my next career move, uh, moving away from market research and actually uh, managing new products. And I had the opportunity uh, going into the uh, early to mid nineties to manage uh, some really exciting uh, new products in the financial services world. Right. I uh, actually made the uh, migration from uh, from AT and T to Bank of America, where I spent uh, eighteen years. So you spent some time. You worked on, and this is when ATM cards weren't common. You worked on prepaid ATM cards, and um, tell us about the the work that you did with this new and emerging technology at the time. Yeah. So back in about nineteen ninety four, Visa initiated a new type of a card that was an international prepaid ATM card so that you could load up funds on the card and take it wherever you were traveling around the world and be able to go to an ATM machine and withdraw money. And that way you wouldn't have to carry a lot of cash with you. Uh, if you if, 
uh, if people recall back in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s, traveler's checks were very popular yes, to travel right. overseas as a way to safely take money. Well, this was a new, better electronic alternative. All you had to take was this card. And if you lost the card, you didn't lose the money. Uh, you didn't have to go to some American Express office and get the traveler's checks replaced. Uh, you could get a new card sent to you or you could take a backup card and then you could access your money at ATMs around the world. So I was with uh, Bank of America, actually a predecessor bank of Bank of America, Barnett Bank, which was, happened to be the largest bank in Florida. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got together with Visa to uh, issue, uh, become one of the first banks in the world that issued hmm. a prepaid ATM card. And so that, that was kind of an exciting time. I got to do this new product development, got to launch a new product. And what, but the most exciting thing about it was shortly after we launched the product and we had conceived it in the vision that Visa had of it being for people that were traveling for pleasure overseas. But we, we very quickly found out that there were other uses for it. And this is where the creativity comes into play. Okay. We took a look at an existing product and realized, hey, there's other markets that could benefit from this notion of storing the value on a card and using it later and, and having it be separate from a, a checking account, just this, this special prepaid card account. And so we actually had some very interesting business sales. We sold cards to the Los Angeles Lakers basketball team. They mm -hmm. used cards as prizes for halftime shootouts. Uh, so when they'd invite people out of the stands at halftime to take a half court shot, and if somebody made it, they'd, they'd give them money, let's say $1,000, and they'd, right. what they'd do is instead of having to have cash, they would have the cards, and they would just hand the, the lucky uh, contestant a card. We also had a, another interesting sports-related use for the card. In 1998, the Winter Olympics were in Nagano, Japan, and the CBS network had to employ about 5,000 people to cover the Winter Olympics. And they had to send these people over for a very long time. There's about six weeks ahead of the games to set up and then during the games and time after the games. So they had to send people there for you know, upwards of three months and they had to figure out a way to, a way to pay their employees. And so they came to us and bought several thousand cards as a way to, to pay their employees while they were there. So they would load money on the cards and the employees could just withdraw the funds at ATM machines in Japan without having to open up a, a Japanese bank account. So there were, mm -hmm. there were several other types of uses of the card that we came up with. Some we came up with and some people came to us uh, for them because we were one of the only banks in the world offering the card. So that, that was a, a pretty exciting uh, new product that I was involved in. And then it seems like, so, and, and this was a product that you were involved in uh, where the product was already created. Now, and then at some point you transitioned to, to become part of that first or what you call the front end of innovation where you're actually brainstorming and starting to create products yourself. Can you tell us about the transition from, from looking at a product that's already made to beginning to create your own products? Right. So I, I spent several years as a new product manager launching lots of new products, but they were always uh, kind of a top-down thing where upper management said, hey, here's something we want you to do. Uh, you take the ball and run with it and launch mm -hmm. this product. Uh, so, for example, I launched the Bank of America business debit card. Also, I worked on one of the first uh, uh, installations of a, a deposit image ATM machine where you, you mm -hmm. insert your check right in the ATM machine. You see the picture on the screen 
Oh, uh, yeah. Get a picture on the receipt. But, but all, those, uh, all those different new product offerings were, were things that upper management had come up with, and it was kind of a top-down driven uh, innovation. And one of the things I wanted to get into was, uh, was to tap back into that, that creativity uh, penchant I had, and also uh, my going into my background of market research, I, I realized that a lot of times customers are going to tell you things that, uh, that they have problems with or they have needs with that upper management hasn't really thought of. And, and it mm-hmm. occurred to me that really innovation should be driven by the customer first, not, not upper management first. And so I moved into what I call, what's called in the industry, uh, the front end of innovation, where you're understanding customer needs, translating those needs into generating ideas for new products or services or programs or even processes, and then evaluating those ideas and deciding which are the ones that the company should invest in. So, so that major move in the business world in the early 2000s, uh, leaving the role of a new product manager and moving into managing the front end of innovation. And in the, in the business world, the front end of innovation is sometimes called the fuzzy front end because it's not cut and dry what you're doing. You don't know where you're right. going to end up. Uh, what, you, what you know is you have a, a loose process. We're going to go out and talk to customers about a particular business objective we have or, or an area that we're looking to improve. And we gain deep insights about the, those customers, mostly focusing on what are their problems. When, when you're right. in customers' problems and challenges, then you're in a, a great position to try to ideate or generate ideas to try to solve for those things. And so I, I really enjoyed that process and, and I had the uh, good fortune to uh, be able to manage that process first just for uh, the small business part of Bank of America and then for the entire uh, retail bank uh, as, as time went on. And, and that, was, uh, that, was, that was a very exciting time for me. I like that idea that the term ideate, it is fuzzy, as you said. It's, it's a process that you're, you're not sure what you're going to get when you start. You just sort of have to have confidence, one, in, in the people who are giving you these ideas, and then two, in your ability to understand and translate those into something tangible. So, and just going back to who you are and who you knew you were early on as a child, it seems like that, that inner confidence to be able to do that fit perfectly with, with this ideation that you talk about. Yes, yeah, successfully managing the front end of innovation requires the development of a lot of skills. That, that market research background I had, that was crucial because that, that gives you the foundation to really understand customer needs. But then the, the next thing you really need to develop is the capability to manage that ideation or brainstorming process. And so along the way, I, I had training in becoming an ideation facilitator. And at some point, uh, I guess about 15 years ago, I started leading all the brainstorming sessions at Bank of America. Uh, <laughs> leading brainstorming sessions is so much fun. Yeah. And what I found is there's, there's so many benefits to it because to run a brainstorming session effectively uh, requires a lot of preparation and one of the things you need to prepare for uh, the most, really, is deciding the composition of the group. And it's critical to make sure that you've got a wide cross-section of people. Right. I like to say uh, diversity is critical in brainstorming because we want to have a diversity of thought. Yes. Uh, we need to have people with lots of different backgrounds, lots of different perspectives, because the real magic 
in a brainstorming session happens when one person starts to come up with kind of the seeds of an idea. And then another person across the room who has a different background, different perspectives, catches on to that and adds on to it. And together, they, the synergy is there of an idea being created that neither person would have ever come up with on their own. Right. And that, that's really the, the, the magic of group brainstorming and, and why you bring people together to brainstorm instead of just having the, the virtual suggestion box where you just have people submit ideas and, and it's being done solo. And, and that's not to say people can't come up with ideas. A lot of us have this image of the eureka moment where you're, you're taking a shower and all of a sudden <laughs> right. it pops in your head. And, and, that very, and that absolutely is a real phenomenon. Uh, you know, most listeners have probably had an idea come to them while they were cooking or walking or taking a shower. And you know, they have that eureka moment. But most great ideas don't come about through the eureka moment. Most of them are built over time. And that's why you have to have strong brainstorming ideation facilitation capabilities to, to nurture that process and, and encourage people to share ideas and then build on those ideas. That is, that is excellent. That's an excellent place to pause too. We're going to go to a, a quick break and then we come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about um, what you have done since you left the corporate world and, um, We will be right back after this short break. Thank you for listening to Mastermind. Stay tuned. We don't follow. We lead. Join us. The Voice America Influencers Channel. Some encounters are mysterious, connecting us with something larger or with feelings of joy and wonder. Tune in to experiences and creative melodies that move the soul with host Danielle Burns for Gifts of Inner Wisdom. You'll hear real stories, interviews, and songs of the archetypal sacred from a deep healing perspective. Enjoy soothing harmonies of love, psyche, and soul every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Influencers Channel. And join us for a replay of the show on Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Want to improve your health, business, and life just by listening to a radio show? Well, we can at least move you in the right direction. Listen for Spotlight, the Allison H. Larson Show. Each week, Allison will speak with amazing guests and find out what's changed their lives and how they are changing the lives of others. From beauty to health to business and personal relationships, we're here to inspire you to live your life of passion. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Influencers channel change starts here change starts now join us the voice america influencers channel you are listening to mastermind with dr rebecca 
To reach out to us during the live show, please call in to 1-866-472-5795. Again, that's 1-866-472-5795. Or you can send an email to Dr. Huey at lifthealing.com. Now, back to Mastermind. And welcome back to Mastermind. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca, and we are talking with Mr. Lynn Furman. Uh, before the break, we had a conversation about his his life in the corporate world and, and uh, his job as an ideation facilitator, which was a really interesting job. Um, where He leads brainstorming sessions or led brainstorming sessions. And um, during the break, we had a little bit more of a, a conversation about what this means. And so, Lynn, I would like for you to share with our listeners a little bit more about what a brainstorming session is and how you lead those and, and what are the advantages to these types of sessions. Well, thanks, Rebecca. Um, well, I think brainstorming sessions are really fascinating. And the one, one of the most fascinating things is they have to be facilitated very well or you don't get the desired outcome. So I, when I, before I became a brainstorming facilitator, I, was, I participated in lots of brainstorming sessions, strategy meetings, and sometimes they would end up uh, very badly where mm-hmm. people uh, started arguing uh, and you didn't get the desired outcomes you wanted. And, and as I had brainstorming training, I, I realized that it's really critical to establish the right atmosphere and environment to bring out ideas. Uh, one of the things you have to always be cognizant of is that in our society, about half the people are extroverts and half the people are introverts. And the introverts, if you judge their ideas too soon, or if you allow ideas to be criticized as they come up, those introverts, they'll, they'll just shut down. They, they won't share any more ideas. So it's really critical to ensure that you set the environment that no idea is a bad idea. We're going to encourage all ideas, and we're going to save judgment for ideas until later. And we want to put a premium on building on ideas and avoiding uh, a behavior that probably all your listeners have probably heard sometime in the last week, what I call yes, but type behavior where Mm -hmm. somebody says, somebody comes up with an idea and somebody else says, yes, good idea, but it might not work because of this or that. There's always going to be some reason why it doesn't work. And that even that yes, but type uh, uh, behavior will, will tend to shut down and shut off uh, the development of good ideas. And so, so we have to create an environment where, we want people to build on the ideas and we want them to exhibit yes and type behavior where you, you hear something and then you try your best to build on it. Even if you internally don't think it's a great idea, look for the merits in it or look for how you can add on to it in a way that would make it a good idea. Correct, so, right. So as a brainstorming facilitator, the, the really good brainstorming facilitators understand how to manage the dynamics of the session and ensure that it's always moving in a positive direction and that will save evaluation for later or the next day. And what, what I found is some, some interesting and almost unintended consequences when you run a really good brainstorming session. One of them is simply that everybody comes away feeling kind of charged up. And so brainstorming sessions, good brainstorming sessions actually become without intending to it, great team building events, because by definition, what I, 
what I mentioned earlier about how we're trying to have that diversity and bring in people with lots of different backgrounds, lots of different experiences, and, and people that come from different parts of the company. So these are oftentimes in a large uh, company, people coming together that normally might not have ever had the opportunity to meet mm-hmm. and spend a half a day or a day together. And in this positive brainstorming atmosphere that I'm trying to uh, maintain throughout the session, uh, everybody kind of feels good about themselves. That they, they have a great working day together and they just leave uh, feeling uh, very charged up and feeling like this was a great day. And so it, it's this, it's this fantastic uh, team building experience. I would imagine then even after the brainstorming session, just the way people interact with each other at work, they, they um, have improved relationships and might feel uh, more free to express their ideas and opinions with each other, even if, uh, you know, somebody who they may not, because they have a different background, may not have felt comfortable around or may not have understood as well, might now be able to approach, you know, colleagues in a different way and, and feel more free to share ideas and to collaborate. Absolutely. I've seen people after they've been through my sessions one or two times and they understand the process of idea generation, how important it is to exhibit that yes and behavior instead of the yes but behavior. I've seen how they they take this back and in their their everyday work lives, they can apply the same things. And, And that creates better business relationships. And then I had an epiphany a few years ago after more than a dozen years of facilitating brainstorming sessions and constantly when I was in business mode, uh, trying to facilitate the dynamics that are necessary to build good business ideas, it all of a sudden occurred to me one day, why don't I apply the same principles Mm -hmm. in my personal life and how I'm treating personal relationships? And, And I realized that I was a big yes, but person in my personal life, even though in my Mm -hmm. business life, I, you know, the mantra was always there of, of uh, try to try to build in ideas. I wasn't doing it in my personal life. And so I started applying this in my personal life. And I, I suddenly noticed a lot of benefits uh, with that and, and personal relationships improving. And so this is something I've started recommending to, to everybody, not just in the business world. Right. Think about what you're saying and, and how you're saying it when somebody comes to you, even if it's a family member or a friend, if somebody comes to you with an idea don't immediate, it seems to be a knee-jerk reaction to, to want to be critical of, of other people's ideas. But if you, if you develop the mindset of, okay, I'm going to take in, I'm going to listen to that idea, and, and listening is really key. Listen to the idea, empathize with the person who's putting forth the idea, try to understand well, right. why was it that they put forth that idea, and then take that yes and approach and try to build on the idea. Even if you think your gut sense is, hey, I don't think this is such a great idea. Right. Try to build on the idea. You might actually create something Together. that's a better idea than you would have ever thought of on your own. And this is, this is something that all your listeners can apply in their personal lives. Try not, to, try not to, to say yes, but, or be critical of ideas. Accept ideas and build on ideas and, and always, always try to look at things, look for the positive in things, and, and you will find that it will really improve the quality of your relationships. Right. And, and it, besides coming up with great ideas, just the, just the act of listening and showing the other person that you're listening will improve the relationship regardless of the outcome of that specific idea. So, um, and I like the point you made before, too, about how we tend to compartmentalize where we know what to do and at work and we do things a certain way and it's just clear cut. And 
and we're confident in that area. And then we can act a completely different way outside of work or vice versa. And if we can learn to um, use concepts across, you know, between work and home or, you know, with friendships, with relationships and realize that these concepts, if they're real and if they're true, will work in any situation and improve, improve relationships, you know, in the household as well. And then it tends to just be, you know, reinforcing if you're, you know, have, have a happier home life, then that can improve your work life and work life can improve your home life. It just makes sense to integrate these concepts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what you're bringing up is something very interesting. It's called the related worlds method of thinking. And it's actually one of the most uh, important creative exercises that I use in a brainstorming session to help people generate ideas. And what related worlds it means is just simply the notion of taking a look at how something is done in one field or industry and saying, well, how could I apply that to this other field or industry that I'm involved in? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so just like you were saying, taking these uh, aspects of how you uh, think about managing work and then seeing, well, how might that apply to in my personal life? That, that's using related worlds uh, type thinking, and uh, it's one of the it's one of the core creative exercises I will use in a brainstorming session. Brainstorming sessions are not just all about having people just come up with ideas. You, you uh, we we do some of that, but then uh, all effective brainstorming leaders will uh, be well versed in an arsenal of different creative exercises that we will then use to help generate ideas. And so, besides related worlds, uh, which is always a great one to use. Another one I like to use is something I call pick your problem, where I list all the problems that we found that customers had when we did all of that market research and and then uh, put those problems up on a wall and I'll divide up the the group into uh, teams and I'll say each team, I want you to go up to the wall and pick a couple of problems that you want to work on and then go back to your tables and generate as many ideas as you can for those specific problems. And so that, that's a great technique because it puts mm-hmm. problems in the hands of the people who are most passionate about solving those problems. Mm-hmm. Just, just one more quick creative exercise that I find is really yeah. uh, interesting and uh, lends itself to ideas that you wouldn't have come up with any other way. Uh, it goes by a couple of names. Uh, one is assumption busting. Uh, another is uh, systematic inventive thinking uh, subtraction. Uh, either way, it's the same thing. It's the notion of trying to uh, trying to get rid of uh, something uh, a, psycho- a psychological framework called functional fixedness, where we get stuck yes. in a certain way. And yes. when we so when we look at maybe a, a particular product, uh, and we have some assumptions about what the product has to be like or what features it has to have, mm-hmm. and in assumption busting, we say, well, what if we couldn't have one of those? What if we we took away a feature of a product. And, and at first it sounds kind of nonsensical and people are thinking, well, that this, this brainstorming facilitator, he's just kind of off his rocker. You can't have this product without that feature. But then when, when I challenge them to say, well, what kind of value proposition would you have or, or who might benefit from this product if it didn't have this feature? And then all of a sudden, some people will, you know, maybe they'll have that eureka moment in the middle of the brainstorming session where they'll say, oh, I, can, I realize what we could do. And I'll give you an actual example here. Philips Electronics used this exact uh, brainstorming method about 20 years ago. 
uh, if you recall, uh, back in the 90s, all VCRs had a uh, uh, video cassette recorders when we were still using those, had a, a little <laughs> screen on them where you had the menu for uh, the, the, the command controls for the VCR. And in this brainstorming session where they said, okay, what are all the assumptions about our VCRs? Well, one of them is it has an LCD screen so that you can uh, identify the menu options to control the machine. And then the facilitator says, well, let's say it doesn't have the LCD screen. And, and immediately the, the Philips employees are saying, well, that's ridiculous. How are you going to control the machine if there's no LCD screen? You're not going to be able to see what you're doing. And then somebody said, well, wait a minute. This, this VCR machine, it's hooked up to this other machine that's got a nice big screen on it. Why don't we use the television screen as our screen and we'll point our, our controller at the television instead of pointing at the VCR. And, and that was the epiphany. And immediately they ran with that. And within a, a year or two, all VCRs had no screen on them anymore. All of them were using mm. the television uh, to control it. And by the way, that, that reduced a lot of the expense mm -hmm. weight in the VCR. So VCRs became lighter, they became cheaper, and they were better because you could now uh, more easily control them using the television screen where you could actually, uh, you know, actually see exactly what you wanted to do instead of trying to decipher things on that little LCD screen which had limited characters. So that's, that's assumption busting. So the point I'm trying to make is just simply that that there's all these different creative exercises that you use in a brainstorming session to generate ideas. And a lot of these can be used in your personal life, again, to rethink how you're thinking about something and come up with solutions for your, for your own personal problems that you might have never thought of if you hadn't, if you didn't apply these different creative techniques. Right. And, and uh, yeah, to, to mention a term that you, um, you said before, functional fix fixedness is a huge barrier to creativity, I've learned, where we get so, our brains get so locked into how things have to work, or this thing is designed for this purpose only, I can't use it for this, I can't do this with it. And once we get become locked in that idea, then it becomes almost impossible to to get outside and to see things in other ways. And so to get rid of that functional fixedness is, is really key to being able to maneuver differently and to be, become much more creative and also to use what we already have in different ways as opposed to thinking we have to have something new or create something entirely new. We can just look at old things in new ways. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's endless solutions to problems and, and a lot of people get stuck thinking there's only a limited way set of uh, set of options and so a great brainstorming session is going to help you uh, unlock uh, those assumptions think differently apply various creative exercises that will help you generate uh, a plethora of, of ideas and options to solve problems so I will um, we probably have about one minute left here and so I'll introduce just, I know your transition, speaking of related worlds, um, your transition from the corporate world into the academic world where you became a teacher, what you're doing now, actually. So you're a teacher at the University of North Florida, and you teach now business creativity and innovation. So um, when we come back from break, we will talk a little bit more about the change in your world, how the two are related and or unrelated, and dig more into 
uh, what you're doing uh, with this class and, you know, some of the other things, especially the juggling. We have to talk about the juggling. So um, after this short break, we will be back with Mr. Len Furman. You're listening to Mastermind. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca, and we will see you after the break. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. Tune in to the Tony D'Urso Show with key influencers for entertaining and thought-provoking weekly discussions with some of the top stars in their fields. From business, sports, and science to entertainment, music, and literature, Tony's guests share their success and give their wisdom. If you're looking to manifest your vision and see how others have done so, be sure to listen to the Tony D'Urso Show every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in live every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We guarantee Guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. Sustainable success is just around the corner. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or anybody looking for their next level of success, tune into Sustainable Success with host Chris Salem. Did you know that the path to success is a long path that started many years ago? The path you started on then determines what is happening now. Chris and his amazing guests in their field will help you navigate the path to sustainable success every Thursday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America in Influencers Channel. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are listening to Mastermind with Dr. Rebecca. To reach out to us during the live show, please call in to 1 866 472 5795. Again, that's 1 866 472 5795. Or you can send an email to Dr. Huey at lifthealing.com. Now, back to Mastermind. Hey, welcome back to Mastermind. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca, and we are talking to Lynn Furman about creativity and innovation. And during this segment, we are going to get into a little bit more, Lynn, about your um, what you're doing now. So currently you are an adjunct, adjunct professor at the University of North Florida teaching about business creativity and innovation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Well, when I left the corporate world after 25 years, decided it was uh, enough in the corporate world and I had learned everything I was going to learn, I had this incredible opportunity uh, really just full in my lap. The University of North Florida, which is here in Jacksonville where I live, invited me to create a course on business innovation. It was a unique opportunity. The business school there did not have a course on business innovation. Uh, they, they knew what my background was, and so they invited me to create the course. And they gave me carte blanche to actually create the course uh, as I saw fit. And so this has been, it's been a fantastic uh, experience. And what I've done is tried to create a course that was uh, very much interactive. So there's lecture, 
naturally there's going to be lectures, but there's a, a lot of interactivity in which I have a, a semester-long group project in which I have mm -hmm. the students form teams, and then they fictitiously innovate for publicly traded companies. So, like, a lot of the students will pick mm -hmm. Apple and Amazon. Of and course. And all semester going <laughs> through my innovation process, the front end of innovation and the back end of innovation, and uh, and actually doing real market research, talking to talking to other students that are posing as customers and conducting brainstorming sessions and evaluating those ideas and then building prototypes for the ideas they develop. They go through the whole process. So it's really hands-on. They do a lot of that during class time. So students really like that. So it's really interactive. And I, I've been teaching the course now for five years. And I had the, um, I had the great honor just a few weeks ago, Forbes magazine, a Forbes magazine featured uh, my class uh, in, uh, in, in an article on how to teach college students about business innovation. So the whole article was really yes. about my class and the approach I've come up with. And so that was a real great honor. And it was, uh, it, it was um, great validation uh, for me personally of all the hard work I've put into this class over the years. That was an excellent article. And um, from my understanding, too, then not only um, are you teaching, but you're also consulting. You do speaking engagements, too. Yeah, so I consult uh, in various aspects. I, I help companies manage the innovation process. I do market research for companies. I do training on innovation. So I take what I'm doing in the classroom for the semester-long course and boil it into a one- to three-day program uh, for corporations uh, but I also do speaking that you mentioned, and I, I want to talk about that because it's a really interesting story. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of a backstory to this. So uh, going back uh, many years ago, uh, when I was approaching my 40th birthday, I had on my bucket list to learn how to juggle. Uh, for whatever reason, it was something else that going back to my childhood, I'd probably seen it at the circus, and I thought, I really want to learn how to juggle. And I I tried to do it over the years, but pre-internet, it was really hard to find any instruction on how to juggle. And so I, uh, using my, my innovation background, when I was approaching 40 years old, I said, okay, I'm gonna reverse engineer this. I'm gonna figure out what would the steps be to juggle. And then, and I came up with these steps and I taught myself how to juggle. And the interesting thing was uh, years later when I became a somewhat proficient juggler and became an officer in the International Jugglers Association, I found out hmm. that the steps I had come up with were, the, were generally the same steps that, that people who know how to juggle uh, use to teach other people. So I had become a juggler. That's the first part of this story. The second mm -hmm. part is I was, I was still at Bank of America. Uh, it was about 10 years ago. And there was a conference an industry conference that I thought would be extremely valuable for me to go to in my role at the bank, uh, managing the front end of innovation, but there was no budget to send me to the conference. So I found out that if I was a speaker at the conference, then the conference would pay for me to go to the conference. And right. so I figured, and, but I knew it was going to be really competitive to get to be a speaker at this conference. You had to submit papers and go through a whole through, through a whole proposal process. So I thought, there's, I'm going to have to have some angle to my speech that makes it so different, so compelling, that they're going to want to bring me in. So I thought, well, what if I take my juggling and I break down my speech? My speech was going to be uh, about my, uh, my four-step process to managing innovation. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, what if I, what if I take each step and relate it to a step in teaching people how to juggle? And so that's what I did. I created this program where I taught the entire audience how to juggle. I used specially designed juggling scarves that float in the air. So it gives you the feeling of juggling in slow motion so you can see what's going right. on. And that way, everybody has the capability of learning. And so I put together this program where I taught the four steps to innovation and I related each step in the innovation process to a step in learning how to juggle and taught the entire uh, group how to juggle. And it went over and, and I was accepted to speak at the conference. And of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I started doing this. I started doing this as a way to go to business conferences when I was still at Bank of America. And then when I left Bank of America, I realized, well, there's a market for this. So I started doing paid uh, speaking engagements. So I still speak at some conferences. And then, and then I also uh, speak as paid engagements when companies want to have team building programs or they just, just want to teach their people how to create a culture of innovation and do it in a way that's fun and entertaining I like to say that my, my speech is, uh, it's informational, it's interactive, and it's also inspirational because people at the start yeah. of the session, when I tell them at the end of this 60 minutes, you're going you're gonna to know how to juggle. And they look at me like I'm absolutely crazy. I'm not going to be able to teach them how to juggle. And then at the end of the session, they're all juggling. And right. it becomes this inspirational, motivational speech without, without even trying to be inspirational. I'm just trying to teach them in the steps to the innovation process and do it in a way that's fun by teaching them how to juggle. And by the way, by, by relating the two together and making those associations, it helps people to, uh, to learn things better. And so, so the mm-hmm. juggle kind of fits in very well with the speech and it becomes this uh, inspirational uh, program. And it's great to be able to come away from a business conference with a new skill, a tangible skill like, like juggling. It's just not the norm. Um, and then, like you said, to come away also with, you know, having learned in a different way involving not only your, your, your sight, but your hearing and then also the kinesthetic aspect of it, which a lot of times when you hear, you know, hear people come talk, you, you don't get to move around. You don't get to, to handle things. You don't get to be actively involved. So they learn it in a different way, in a more sustainable way. Exactly. And so in my program, people are up on their feet. Uh, juggling in, in a few separate five-minute segments so, so they're not falling asleep watching a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> right. and, and they know that they're <laughs> doing this particular juggling step for a purpose because it's relating to this other innovation step. And the best thing is at the end of the session, you get to keep the juggling scarves. So oh, that's nice. And show your kids what you learned at that conference that you oh. were at and teach them how to juggle. So that's, you know, that's a lot of fun too. Yeah, that is fun. So you, um, so let's say, so we hear about how you, what you do when you do speaking engagements. What if I were a company wanting to hire you as a consultant? What, what could I expect um, to like how you would approach? And I know it depends what the business is, but just in general, your approach to what, one of the things I do is I always customize everything I'm doing. So the first thing I would do if, if it was a company coming to me is I'd understand, try to gain a deep understanding of what are their needs? What are they trying to accomplish? What are their objectives? And a lot of times companies, they don't really, they haven't really thought through their objectives. So, so I'm very big on making sure you can come up with uh, simple and focused objectives that everybody really understands what you're trying to do. So everybody's on the same page. And once, once I understand that, then I can, then I'm in a better position to put together a custom proposal 
that I think, and give them various options on what they want to do, uh, what they want to try to accomplish with me uh, to help achieve their goals. So I'm, I, I, in my consulting business, I work on any aspect of the front end of innovation, whether it's, whether it's the market research, what I like to call the explore phase, where you're trying to understand your customer needs, gain, gain that uh, deep empathy for the customer, mm-hmm. and the IDA phase. So some people just bring me in to, to facilitate a brainstorming session so I can manage the brainstorming sessions. And then, and then the evaluate phase, which I think is an often overlooked phase, what I call the evaluate phase, where you, you've got hundreds of ideas and now you need to narrow them down and pick the ones that you want to invest in. I find that's one area that most companies don't have a really good process for. And, and mm. uh, when I was at Bank of America, they, they didn't have a good process for it either. So I developed in conjunction with a few other people what I call the, the idea tournament process. And, and this idea was a tournament process. Yeah, a set of steps to make this tedious process of boiling down hundreds of ideas to a few that you're going to invest in, make that a fun and engaging process by coming up with various exercises in which we rate and rank uh, and score the ideas and then take them and put them in front of customers. So going back to my experience all the way back in the 80s when I was a new product market research manager and I had that expertise of how do you take uh, ideas and put them in front of customers and get and get uh, good scientific feedback from customers on whether these ideas are going to meet their needs and, and are, are they things that we think have a chance of winning in the marketplace. Okay. So, um, and, and the tournament aspect is, is basically, is it a competition? Is it, how is it related to a tournament? Well, I, I try to make it fun. So the, the tournament idea, this was kind of a related worlds kind of thinking when I, when I came up with this, where I said, it, it was it was right around the time of March Madness, the NCAA basketball tournament, when I was when I was uh, managing a particular uh, project at Bank of America, and uh, and so uh, I said, what if we made it like March Madness, where we've got all these ideas and they're vying to be one of the final few that move on, and so we we actually uh, ranked all the ideas and had them go through scoring exercises and some and and we had various rounds and some ideas would not make it from one round to the next. Uh, and, and through various uh, rounds of, of competition, the ideas were, were, were kind of competing against each other to be that final few. And, and I've, I've run these idea tournaments now many times. I've never done it the same way twice. I've always customized it. One of the, one of the key things I added after I read the Malcolm Gladwell book, Blink. Uh, oh, yes. That was a good book. Epiphany about, that, that book's all about how if you have a lot of expertise in an area, your gut feeling is something that should be uh, considered. And so mm-hmm. it occurred to me, if, if some people uh, in a particular industry that we're, I'm working with them on have a lot of experience, we, we, should, we should let them look at an idea and say, hey, my gut feeling is this is a really good idea or this is a really bad idea. But particularly for the really good ideas, if, if one person sees something in an idea, nobody else sees it. So when we went through the scoring exercises, this idea scored really low, we would have, we would have normally said, okay, it's cut from the tournament. But if one person says, no, I, I see something here, I let them now uh, add what I call the champion label to the idea. So anybody can champion uh, one idea so that it continues on in the idea tournament and, and st- it has a life where oh, okay. uh, that idea can still get some airplay and some time for other people to say, okay, yeah, I see the merits in this. 
or to allow the right market research to be done so that we tapped into the right audience that had right. a need for that. And so in that way, we don't prematurely uh, kill off an idea just because the masses didn't see anything in it, but somebody somebody saw yeah. the brilliance of that idea and we let that idea keep going. So, so I'm always trying to innovate about the idea tournament process to, to make it fun and make it work so that ultimately we're selecting the optimal ideas to move forward. And, and this is really critical because in the business world, most new products fail. Uh, some studies have shown that up to 95% of all new products fail. And mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do through this process is help companies select the best ideas so that they have the best chance of succeeding in the market. That's excellent. I like that idea of being listening to gut instincts and, and being able to, to hold on to that to, or champion that idea because often that's the one that is, is the idea that nobody else recognized as, as um, important. Um, this is a great conversation. I wish we could continue. We're sort of at the end. We maybe have a minute and a half left. I want to give you a chance to just tell us a little bit about what we, how, how to find you online, your website, and what we can find on your website, and then also how to find your book. Well, thanks. So my website yeah. is, uh, it's fairly simple. It's my last name, Furman, F like in Florida, E-R-M-A-N, Furman, and then the word innovation, I-N-N-O-V-A-T-I-O-N, so FurmanInnovation.com. Okay. And on my website, you'll find information about the, my consulting business, uh, the market research, the brainstorming facilitation, the idea tournament process, and also wow. my speaking program. And you can see a uh, prom promotional video about my speaking program so you can see exactly what it's like and see people throwing the, the scarf. It's a good video. How much fun they're having <laughs> out there. And then the book, uh, the simplest way to find the book is, um, is actually to just go to Amazon and type in uh, business, creativity, and innovation, perspectives, and best practices. So if you, need, you need the whole thing there to find it. Or, or another way is just simply uh, type uh, Len Furman, so my name, and then my, the name of my publisher, uh, Cognella, C-O-G-N-E-L-L-A. And the advantage of going to the publisher's website is that actually the book's about 20% cheaper than Amazon at the publisher's website. Oh. And uh, for your listeners, I'll tell you, there's, uh, there's a button uh, just below the picture of the book where you can see a, a free preview of the book and you can read for free my entire chapter on running idea tournaments. Wow, okay. So to find that again, uh, type in uh, Len Furman, and Cognella, C-O-G-N-E-L-L-A. -L -L That's the publisher's name, and, and you'll see the, the book come right up. Great. Well, thank you so much, Len Furman. It was great to have you on the show. This is some really nice information. I love this conversation about creativity, and we'll definitely check out this, um, check out the book as well. I do want to remind listeners, too, that on my website, drrebeccamd.com, you will find a mini ebook also uh, called Infinite Creativity. So if you're all in the creativity mood, you have a, a lot of material to look through. Um, and we will see you again next week on Mastermind. Len Furman, thank you so much again for joining us and hope to talk to you again. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to Mastermind. Please join Dr. Rebecca for another show next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. We'll talk again next week.